Sometimes it can be quite unsettling to actually get what you ask for. Right? Normally we think we want it, but sometimes it's unfortunate. Whether that's a sort of a, the classic genie stories, you know, where it always ends badly for the wisher, uh, or it's like the unfortunate dog that was actually going to catch the truck and then has to figure out what to do with it. We have to be careful what we ask for. I'm reminded of a story from Gene's dad's ministry, Melanie's grandfather. He's a pastor in Canada. There was a, a time in his ministry where I'm guessing the church was a bit stagnant, needed, needed some revival. So he prayed for God to rain down fire on the church, and it burned to the ground that week. <laughs> Obviously, don't mess with him in prayer, and be careful what you ask for. This morning, we continue our series in Malachi. We move on to the fourth debate between the people of Israel and God. And what we see today are the people of Israel demanding justice from God. Despite all of the injustice in their hearts, all of the injustice they've been practicing, all the injustice that God has been rebuking them for for the last several chapters. So, as we're going to see in Malachi, beginning in chapter 2, verse 17, and then rolling into chapter 3, verse 5, you have to be careful what you ask for. Malachi writes, You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Well, the people of Israel have apparently been complaining over and over again to God, and he's sick of it. Malachi says in verse 17, You have wearied the Lord with your words. They have been accusing him of favoring evil people, causing them to prosper, that he must like evil people. So, of course, they're implicitly accusing God of being unjust, of being evil. Then they go on to accuse him of being distant, uninvolved, absent, weak, incapable of solving the problems, because over and over they are just complaining about the injustice that they perceive in the world saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Asking, where is the God of justice? 
They do this, I think, because they see so many people that they perceive to be good suffering in the world. So many people that they perceive to be bad prospering in the world, and they cannot figure out why God could possibly permit this to happen. This is a conversation people still have today, both believers and skeptics alike. So very little has changed in 2,500 years. But the bitter irony here is that these very same people who are, who are demanding God immediately provide justice are the ones whose deep injustice was the target of God's wrath in the three earlier debates in Malachi. These are the covenant breakers who are treating their marriages sort of like styrofoam cups to be thrown away at their convenience. These are the covenant breakers who are treating the God of the universe like some sort of impotent fool that they can just sacrifice anything they feel like to and get away with it. These are the covenant breakers who are teaching false things in the temple. These are the covenant breakers who are marrying the worshipers of other gods, and yet they stand before the Lord and demand justice. They call on God to appear right now and set everything to their version of right. And God essentially says, okay, I'll tell you what my plan is for the rest of the time, but be careful what you ask for. He lays out his big picture, a plan that unfolds in three chapters, each centered around a different figure. And so what we see over the course of these next five short verses in Malachi is a concise history, well, a concise summary of the future history of God's saving work in the world. And the first chapter of what to them is the future history is the time of the messenger who we know to be John the Baptist. The first part of Malachi 3.1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Now this verse is consistently quoted throughout the Gospels, and John the Baptist is universally identified as this messenger. As an example, Matthew 11.10, Jesus says of John, This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now in Mark chapter 1, it also begins by identifying John as the messenger, quoting this verse from Malachi. And then it goes on in, in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, to talk about how John prepared the way for Jesus. What is the significance of his arrival? What was his role? Mark says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So as the messenger, John prepared the way for Jesus by essentially trying to stir up the hearts of the people of Israel. And he is successful. They get stirred up on issues of God and, and forgiveness and sin, things that they have basically not been thinking about very seriously for centuries. They recognize something is going on. In fact, there has been no prophet in Israel for, for 400 plus years at this point. They recognize John is a prophet of God. Something is happening. God is moving. So he calls them to repentance. He warns them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this, this chapter, this time of the messenger, is relatively brief. It ends with his arrest and subsequent beheading. His arrest marks the beginning of the next chapter, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
And so begins chapter 2 of God's future history, the time of the refiner and the purifier, who is Jesus Christ. Now, it's quite likely that Malachi's initial hearers would have been expecting what the events described in chapter 3, verse 1, the sudden return of the Lord to his temple. They were probably expecting the great cloud to descend on the temple as it had in centuries past. But that is not what they experienced. Right? The cloud never came down on the second temple. For the entire time it stood, the cloud of God's presence never came upon the temple. Instead, what they experienced was completely different. The Lord came suddenly into the temple when baby Jesus was brought on the eighth day for his circumcision. And we see Simeon and Anna celebrating the salvation of Israel coming into the temple. This is the arrival of the Lord in his temple. Now, these words that Malachi goes on in verse 2 to describe the time of Jesus are quite different from anything that we might expect. Right? They are not what we think of about when we think about Jesus here in 21st century America, where we think very friendly, positive, loving, kind, kind of like a big teddy bear. But verse 2 asks, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And God uses two images here to describe Jesus. And I want to make sure we understand these images because they help us to understand Jesus in a more rich, full understanding of who he is and how he works. The first of these is refiner's fire. It's describing a high-temperature furnace that, that was used to melt precious metals down, and then the impurities would float up to the top, and they would either burn off or could be skimmed off, leaving only the perfect, pure metal. So let's think about that. Intensely high heat. Metals melting. The garbage, the impurities, floating up and burning off or being skimmed off the top by the refiner. That's Jesus. The second image is fuller's soap. Now, a fuller was a launderer. We don't talk about fullers very much in English. It's a launderer who would would prepare new cloth. He would clean, whiten, thicken, and shrink newly cut wool or cloth so that it could be used. And part of that job is to clean off oily, gummy, nasty substances that are on this material before it can be used. And this is not a pleasant process. He would use some sort of powerful alkaline substance. We might think in our terms of lye soap. But it wasn't always lye soap. Back then there were other disgusting substances used. But an alkaline very harsh. You don't want to come in contact with it with your skin. And he's going to work it in. Work off the gunk. And then it's got to be rinsed out so that the cloth can be used and doesn't still have this stuff on it. So you would usually put it in some sort of source of running water, like a stream or a river. You would lay it on rocks, and then you would either trample on it or you would beat it with sticks until the alkaline was out. That's Jesus. Now, we may not be think, we may not typically think of Jesus this way. 
right? Because there are other aspects of Jesus that we like to think about more, and they are true too. But we need to realize this is also Jesus. He himself said he came to divide families, to divide his people from the world around them. And he was so controversial and incendiary in how he did business and what he said that his own national leaders conspired to kill him. We should remember John the Baptist's promise in Matthew 3, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His work is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat, that's believers, into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's Jesus. Now, in Malachi 3.3, God specifically promises that Jesus will refine and purify the priesthood. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi. You'll recall from a couple of weeks ago, that was the term that Malachi uses to describe the priesthood. Refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Well, the purifier was sent to clean up the priesthood, but he did it in a most unexpected way. Because I'm sure they were expecting a a reform program. But what purified the priesthood was not personal reform, not a, we're going to do better at being good priests. It was the one thing that can purify any person. Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. See, the priests could never purify themselves completely. It was an impossible task for them because they would simply keep sinning throughout their lives, just like we do. We all sin and we fall short of God's standard because God is perfect and holy and righteous and just. And we are not. But his standard is perfection. And in fact, Jesus emphasizes this in Matthew 5.48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And this is terrible news. Because I'm not perfect, and I don't think you are either, although I think very highly of you. Despite all the good work that I believe firmly God has done in my life to date, there is still residual sin in my heart. There is still plenty of work to do. And I look at that and I realize there is absolutely nothing that I can do to bridge that gap between where I stand with residual sin in my heart and where the perfect Lord of the universe stands. On my own, there is nothing I can do to avoid an eternity separated from God. And that is true for each and every one of us. And yet, God still wants that gap bridged because he loves us And he made us to be in relationship with him for all eternity. And so God did all the work needed for us through the purifier, through Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, who bridged the gap by surrendering himself to a terrible death on a Roman cross. He created the bridge, and it is a gift that we do not deserve. It is a gift we can never earn. It is the essence of grace. 
that he bridged that gap and made it available to us. To accept this gift, to cross this bridge, to be purified, right? To enter the presence of the Lord of the universe, we simply have to believe in Jesus the Christ. Believe in his sacrifice. Believe in his death. Believe in his resurrection. Believe in his identity as the Son of God. And ask God to forgive us of those sins that we each have lingering in our past. Paul says it so clearly in Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this process of instant renewal, immediate forgiveness of sins, permanent washing away of guilt and shame through the power of God's infinite grace and mercy, that is the beginning of the process Malachi describes. I say it's the beginning, not because our salvation is a work in progress. That is a finished work through Christ. But because the transformation of our hearts into the likeness of Jesus Christ is the work of the rest of our lives. And so this purification process begins. And we may not realize it, but this prophecy was fulfilled shortly after the resurrection of Jesus. Because in Acts 6, 7... Luke writes that the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We often lose that little clause. We see the purification of the Israelite priesthood taking place. His sacrifice reached many of the priests, bringing them to faith. The words of Malachi are fulfilled. The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. But there is a much broader fulfillment of this prophecy. There's a much more direct impact on us. And that is that as we have discussed now many times this summer and fall, it seems to be the emerging theme of the series of Malachi, and we also touched on it at least twice when we talked in Peter. Every believer in Jesus Christ is a priest. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people called for his possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are the priests being purified and refined by Jesus Christ. Now, some of that process is through our relationship with the Holy Spirit, through our growth and knowledge of the word, through our growth and relationship with God, through prayer. But some of that refinement and purification comes through trials and suffering and discipline. And none of that is pleasant when it's going on. But these are critical parts of the work of the Lord in our lives. If we go back to the images of Malachi, we would have to agree that intense fire and lye soap are not comfortable experiences. But the end result is precious beyond description. James confirms this in his epistle, chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and then verse 12. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Right? Joy when we experience the trials of life. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This brutal process is the thing that completes us as believers in Christ. This is the transformational process. James goes on, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, when it is all over, when we have crossed to the other side of this test, whether it lasts for a week, a month, or the rest of our lives, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So as unpleasant as it is, when we go through difficult times, and I do not want to make it seem like I am taking it lightly. I do not want to trivialize the suffering that we experience. When we get that diagnosis that nobody wants to hear, when we lose that job that we don't know how we're going to find the next one, when we struggle to make ends meet despite working as hard as we can work, when we have a loved one walk out on us, when we lose someone far too young, we are assured that if we persevere through this in a God-honoring way, that Jesus Christ is with us every step of the way, lending us comfort and strength, that these trials and sufferings will be used by God to transform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ to burn off the impurities in our lives. That going through these trials and growing closer to God and focusing on Him, realizing the limits of our strength and our ability, reaching the point of surrender where we quit trying to do it ourselves, and we learn to rely on the strength of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, that transforms us into the very likeness of Christ. That cleanses us deeply of our tendency towards self and sin and shame. It is the brutal scrubbing of the fuller. It is the melting heat of the refiner. And for 2,000 years, we have been in this chapter of God's plan. Jesus Christ has been purifying and refining generation after generation of believers. But let's be clear, this chapter will end. It could be tomorrow or it could be 10,000 years from now. We don't know when, but it will end. And the final chapter of future history will unfold on God's timetable. And this final chapter in God's plan is the time of the judge. Malachi 3.5 promises, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is what the Israelites are crying out for. This is what they've been waiting for. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. As I said, the time of the refiner has gone on for nearly 2,000 years at this point. And I think the reason for this, and there are several passages that speak to it, but I'll pick the one that's closest, Malachi 3, 6 and 7, which is kind of a, a bridge passage between this debate and the next debate. It says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed, destroyed. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I think God has held off on bringing down the curtain on this chapter to give more people time 
to return to him. Because the judgment that the people were asking for, they have no idea what they're asking for, how severe it's going to be. And so as an act of mercy, he delayed the return from what they were thinking that he should come. It's an act of mercy upon those Israelites who are calling on him. as an act of mercy on those people today who do not know the name of Jesus Christ. But we need to make sure we never mistake God's patience for apathy. This was the mistake the Israelites were making in their accusations. They think that because God is waiting, he must not care. But he cares. Romans 14, 10 to 12, make it clear. We will all stand before the Lord and give account for ourselves. As we look at verse 5, we will be specifically judged for things like idolatry in our life. It mentions sorcery, right? I don't think anybody here is a wizard. But sorcery really is speaking to trying to influence the world around you through the power of other things that are not God. Right? There are things we try to apply and use today to change and alter the world around us. And again, I don't think we're specifically practicing witchcraft, but we, we put things in the place of God and think they're going to solve our problems. They become idols for us, things like money, things like status, things like career, the things we think will solve the problems, that we can apply this power and just magically make all our problems go away. We'll be judged on sexual immorality, lying, the mistreatment of those who are most vulnerable among us. This is a huge theme throughout the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, over and over again, the people of Israel are chastised for their treatment of the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant. God cares about these people. We will be held to account for how we have treated those people. We will stand accountable, and we will certainly all fall short in some way. The New Testament says that Christ is the judge. But for genuine believers in Jesus Christ, he is also the greatest defense attorney ever. He stands ready to intervene, to simply say, I have already paid the penalty for this. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, and that word means attorney, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I always make sure I put a sidebar when I use the word propitiation, right? Because we don't talk about propitiating stuff very often. Propitiation is the sacrifice needed to placate the righteous anger of God. That was the meaning then of that word. That is still the meaning today. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he is that placation for the righteous anger of God. That when we face judgment as believers in Jesus Christ, we will be found not guilty because Jesus took our guilt upon himself. That when we stand for judgment, God is not going to see our mess. And believe me, there's still some mess in here. But God is going to see Christ's righteousness in us instead. And this reality is why it is so deeply urgent that we share this good news with people who do not yet know Jesus. 
And it does not require some brilliantly assembled theological presentation, right? That's where we tend to get paralyzed as believers. We think we have to have the perfect answer for everything. We think we have to have the perfect explanation and presentation. That is not the call, right? There is nowhere in the Bible that says you must be a greatly learned person before you share Jesus with anyone. It just says make disciples, It could be as simple as an invitation to join you at church on Sunday morning, to come to Bible study throughout the week. We have Bible studies almost every single day of the week for men and women. Then follow it up, sharing your experiences with God, right? That's what 1 Peter told us to do. Proclaim the excellencies of God. We each have stories about how God is excellent to us and in our lives, and we can share that. We need to realize, truly realize, that for everyone who does not yet know Jesus as Lord and Savior, they only have this lifetime to choose Christ. There is no certainty for them about when this lifetime will end. It could be later today. Malachi assures us that God is both witness and judge against each person. So if we truly love them, We cannot just love them into an eternity separated from God by leaving them alone on this subject. If we truly love them, we have to talk to them about God and Jesus. We have to proclaim God's excellencies. We have to invite them to church or to Bible study because the time of the refiner is going to end one day. And the day of the Lord, the time of the judge, is going to come suddenly and without warning. And we will each be called to account, believer and unbeliever alike. And it's God's desire that when that day comes, every person would be saved. But as Paul asks in Romans 10, 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? We each have a responsibility to make him heard to make his name known. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of your saving work through Jesus Christ. We are so grateful for it. We recognize that we are not perfect, but you are. That our only hope of salvation is also our certainty of salvation, faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not yet accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would do so, that they would make that decision. But I would pray that as you refine us, as you purify us, as you work in our life through your word and through the trials and sufferings of this life, that you would put in us a heart for the lost, an urgency about sharing your good news with all who need to know. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The call this morning is to be prepared for the closing chapter of God's plan for the world. So if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, if you have not yet accepted the free gift of grace that God is offering to you, even if you've been coming to church for years and years, but you have not really accepted it, I would urge you to take that step of faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, Believe that he died on the cross to pay for your sins, to pay that penalty. To believe that on the third day he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death and that his victory is our victory through faith in him. 
that all who believe in him will not only have forgiveness of sins, but everlasting life in the presence of God. So I'd urge you to take that step of faith if you have not done so already. And if you do, or if you have done so recently, that as we sing, you would come forward, that we can celebrate together a new life in Christ. Now, for those who are already believers, we know that the final judgment, Jesus Christ will rise to defend us. But that there are over 5 billion people in this world today who do not have that assurance. For them, the full weight of God's witness and judgment awaits. Five billion. Our responsibility was given to us by Jesus Christ himself. It is to make disciples, to share the good news with those who have not heard it, those who need to hear it most, those in this neighborhood, those in this county, and those all the way to the ends of the earth. So I'd ask that you use the next few moments to not only praise God for his refining work in your life, but to ask him to fill you with love and a heart for those who are lost. And then if you're a regular worshiper with you, but you, with us, sorry, but you have not yet formally joined Lakeridge, I'd like to invite you to come forward as we sing to say that this is your church family. That this is going to be your place of ministry, your place where you're going to be working from to make disciples to reach the lost, that they may stand in the same assurance that we stand in today.